This morning we'll be picking up in John chapter 12. So go to John chapter uh, 12. Uh, This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. And the title of the message uh, this morning is A Tale of Two Souls. A Tale of Two Souls. Uh, Early uh, in the 1900s, there was a 16-year-old boy named William Borden who had a very bright future ahead of him. He came from a wealthy family and he was heir to the Borden family fortune. And he had just graduated high school. And not to make any of you parents of teenagers feel lame, but for his graduation present, his parents gave him a several week trip around the world. How you doing, parents? How's that for a graduation uh, present? Uh, anyway, William Borden was a believer. I believe he became a Christian at the age of seven. And as he traveled through the Middle East and throughout Asia and Europe, he found himself sobered by the need of the world for the gospel. So while he was on this trip, he wrote a letter to his parents telling them of his resolve to become a gospel missionary. Upon hearing of his resolve to become a missionary, one of his friends complained that William was, quote, throwing his life away, unquote. Following his return from this trip, William studied at Yale University and then began his studies at Princeton Theological Seminary. After graduating from Princeton At the age of 25, he boarded a ship headed for Cairo, Egypt, because he wanted to be equipped to reach the three million Chinese Muslims in the Gansu province of China. Borden went to Cairo to study the Arabic language, but sadly, just three months into his time in Cairo, He contracted spinal meningitis. 19 days later, he was dead, having never made it to China. When word of his death reached America, nearly every major newspaper in the United States covered the story. One of his biographers described the impact of his death, saying, and I quote, a wave of sorrow went around the world for a young man who not only gave up his fortune, but gave himself up to be a missionary, a missionary that he never became. Was William Borden's life a waste? Some people thought that it was is the life of any person who gives himself or herself up for the cause of Christ a waste? Some people think it is. Is it even possible to waste anything that you surrender to Jesus? Our passage today will help us to answer this question. Our passage today will feature two people with two very different opinions about the questions that I am asking you. Their names are Mary and Judas, and 
in our passage today, Jesus is going to speak and reveal for us which of those two is in the right and which of those two is truly on the right side of history. To appreciate what happens in our passage today, we need to recall that Jesus is reaching the very end of his public ministry. In fact, we find ourselves here at the beginning of John 12, just six days away from Jesus' death on the cross. In the previous chapter, we saw how Jesus knew that raising Lazarus from the dead would result in his own death. But Jesus goes to Bethany anyway and raises Lazarus from the dead, embracing the fate that he knew would inevitably follow. And sure enough, we saw a few weeks ago how what Jesus did provoked two very opposite reactions. We saw how many of the Jews who saw the miracle began uh, believing in Jesus immediately. We also saw how the Jewish Sanhedrin responded to this miracle by making an official decision to kill Jesus. And they sent out word to everyone that if they know of Jesus' whereabouts, they are to report that to them so that they can have him arrested and kill him. This edict causes Jesus to head up away from the city of Bethany to an obscure little town to spend time with his disciples for a few weeks until the Passover arrives. But we saw at the end of chapter 11 of John's gospel a few weeks ago how the Passover approaches and how pilgrims from around Israel are coming into the city of Jerusalem. And all of them are talking about Jesus and wondering if he is going to dare to make an appearance at this Passover feast. But chapter 12 reveals that Jesus does show up, and his first appearance is in Bethany, a little town about two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem, just two miles. And it is here in Bethany where we will observe, and you can look at your notes if you have them with you, Three developments in a story revealing Jesus' response to Mary and Judas's contrasting perspectives about him. Three developments in this story revealing Jesus' response to Mary and Judas's contrasting perspectives about him, about Jesus. And the first of these developments you can fill in the blank, is number one, Mary extravagantly anoints Jesus during a dinner held in his honor. Mary extravagantly anoints Jesus during a dinner held in his honor. Observe what happens in verse one. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So based on John's wording here, we are six days before the Passover, which is on Friday of the following week, which seems to put the events of these verses that we see at the beginning of John 12 on Saturday, probably after sundown when the Sabbath would be considered over. 
It is on this particular Saturday that Jesus comes to Bethany. And John wants us to remember that this is the same Bethany where Lazarus lived and was raised from the dead in the previous chapter that we studied a few weeks ago. Now look at verse 2 and notice how the verse begins. John has just ended verse 1 by talking about how Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Then he says, look at verse 2, so, so they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. The fact that John says, so they made him a supper there means that they made this supper for Jesus because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So this is not just a supper that Jesus happens to be attending. This is a special supper specifically in Jesus' honor because of the amazing miracle that he had performed in raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that's cause for a party, right? I mean, you would want to put together a supper like this to honor someone who raised a relative of yours from the dead. Now, John's language here does not mean that this supper was at the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, but it only tells us that they were present in this scene. If you read Matthew and Mark's account of this very incident, and you read about that in Matthew 24 and in Mark 14, you learn that this dinner is held at the home of Simon the leper. Simon the leper, whom Jesus had almost certainly healed of his leprosy at some prior point, giving Simon double reason for opening up his home for this dinner in Jesus' honor, a dinner in which we've already learned that Martha and Lazarus are present. We'll learn very quickly that Mary is here too. At this supper, John tells us that Martha was serving, uh, which is not surprising at all, right? It's exactly what we would have expected given the story and Luke 10 about Martha serving while Mary sat at Jesus' feet. Martha evidently is a doer who loves to serve, and her service here is a beautiful thing that honors her Lord. As for Lazarus, John tells us that he was, look at the language, one of those reclining at the table with Jesus. So evidently there were other guests who are at this dinner, including the disciples of Jesus, as we will learn. But among them is Lazarus, who is also reclining with Jesus at this table. John's use of the word reclining reminds us that these guests were not sitting on chairs like we do today when we are eating uh, dinner at the table. In Jesus' day, the table sat much lower to the ground than our tables do today, and the diners would lay on their sides on cushions propped up on their elbow to eat with their feet extended outward from the table. And it was while everyone was reclining in this way, dining together, that something noteworthy happens. Look at verse 3. 
Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The Greek word translated pound here is the word litra, which was a unit of measure that was approximately 12 ounces by our reckoning today. We learn in Matthew and Mark that the container holding this perfume was an alabaster vial, but John only focuses on the contents of this vial, telling us that in the vial was a perfume of pure nard. Nard was an aromatic oil extracted from a plant that was grown in India back in this day. Even today, this oil is sold as one of the essential oils that people find desirable for various purposes, and you can research that on the internet Uh, But John tells us here that Mary's oil was pure nard, meaning that it was not diluted at all. And John also tells us that this pure nard was very costly. As for how costly it was, we're going to learn in the coming verses that this perfume was worth 300 denarii which was essentially a full year's wages for a day laborer back in this time when you removed the Sabbaths that they would not have worked and the holy days, which means that 300 denarii was enough to provide for a man and his family for a full year. If we go by today's annual income for a minimum wage worker which is kind of risky to do this, but just for the sake of perspective, if we go by today's annual income for a minimum wage worker, the value of this pure nard would be no less than $30,000. Now, in Matthew and Mark's account of this incident, they leave Mary nameless, but they both say that she anointed Jesus' head. John does not dispute the fact that Mary anointed Jesus' head at all, but he chooses to put all of his focus on something else that Mary does, telling us in verse 3 that she anointed the feet of Jesus, which is actually quite stunning. One scholar named J.F. Coakley searched through ancient literature and found Eight instances where someone is anointing the feet of another person, leading him to conclude that this practice, whenever it did occasionally occur, was extremely rare and was an act of extravagance. And that is clearly the case here with Mary. In addition to the extravagance of Mary's act, it is also remarkable that Mary, being a woman, would presume to touch Jesus and to anoint his feet. And it is just as remarkable that Jesus would allow her to do this in a public setting without rebuking her. 
Even more stunning, John tells us that Mary wiped his feet with what? With her hair. To do this, Mary would have had to uncover her head and then let her hair down in this public setting in order to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. However you choose to look at what is happening here, this is a stunning move on Mary's part, violating social norms on several levels. What Mary is doing here is a tremendous act of devotion and worship to the Lord Jesus And it manifests her belief in his supreme greatness as the Messiah. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 15, Paul teaches us that if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. So a woman's hair is her glory. And yet here we see Mary laying her glory at the feet of Jesus and using the glory of her hair as merely a towel for Jesus' feet. That's how much Mary thinks of Jesus. Mary never speaks a word in this story, but her actions are speaking volumes, right? We know exactly what Mary thinks of Jesus by observing her actions And there was no hiding what she was doing either. John tells us at the end of verse 3 that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You can't be discreet in showing your devotion to Jesus the way that Mary is right now. Imagine breaking open a jar of pure perfume and putting all of it on somebody at a dinner table. You can't do that discreetly. Or privately, in no time, the entire house will be filled with the fragrance of the perfume as is happening right now here with Mary. Everyone's nostrils are filled with the aroma of what Mary is doing in anointing Jesus' feet. Now, the question we would ask at this point, which might be a bit premature, but it's worth asking What would possess Mary to anoint Jesus' head, as we learn from Matthew and Mark, and his feet in this way? We get some specific indication of the reason in the coming verses, but for now we can, I think, easily conclude that Mary loves Jesus, right? She has a deep love for Jesus, so much so that she is willing to pour out something as costly as an entire year's wages in one simple act of love for Jesus. And keep in mind that this whole dinner is a celebratory dinner in honor of Jesus for raising her brother from the dead. And this is her contribution to the occasion. This anointing is her way of expressing her gratitude to Jesus for what he has done for her family. Jesus released her precious brother from the tomb and gave him back to Mary and to Martha. And now Mary releases this precious perfume from its container and pours it all out on Jesus in return. Between the two of them, Mary would 
certainly confessed that she had received a far greater gift from Jesus than what he is receiving from her. This is just her small response to her great Savior for the great thing he has done for her and her family. Well, as you can imagine, what Mary does here is bound to provoke some kind of reaction from those who are in the room. If someone spilled a whole bottle of perfume at your dinner table, you would probably have some kind of reaction. And there is a reaction that we see as these verses unfold, which brings us to the second development in this story, revealing Jesus' response to Mary and Judas's contrasting perspectives of him. Development number two, Judas. Judas complains about Mary's extravagant anointing of Jesus. Observe what happens in verses four and five. The text says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? According to John's wording here, this criticism is coming from a man who was intending to betray Jesus. John is telling us more here than the fact that Judas will eventually betray Jesus. He's telling us that even now, as Judas is speaking, things were already at work in his heart that would lead to the outcome of him betraying Jesus. The word translated betray literally means to hand over. So what John is telling us is that Judas is already intending to hand Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. We just learned at the end of chapter 10 that the Jewish authorities had sent out word that if anyone knew of Jesus' whereabouts, they should report his whereabouts to them so that they could arrest him. And here we see that Judas already has it in his heart to do exactly that. In fact, notice the juxtaposition of the two descriptions of Judas in verse 4. John describes him as one of his disciples and then describes him as intending to betray him. Who will it be who will follow the word of the religious leaders and hand Jesus over to the authorities? It will be one of Jesus' very own disciples, Judas. As for Judas's complaint, listen to what he says in verse 5. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Ah, the language of compassion. Mary is bestowing a lavish expression of love upon Jesus. And Judas would dare to sit in judgment of her and voice his criticism of her out loud. He's already got a huge log in his eye, intending to commit the ultimate sin of betraying Jesus five days from this moment. Yet here he thinks he perceives some fault with Mary and her expression of love for Jesus. So he criticizes her for what she's not doing, 
for not using the perfume to ease the plight of the poor. And he's asking, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, let me ask you a question. I don't think any of us would really know how to answer this because we already know how this story goes. But if you were in the room on this occasion and you knew nothing of Judas's intentions to betray Jesus, would his criticism of Mary have resonated with you at all? Would you have agreed with him? After all, this perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii and provided food for a man and his family for a whole year. Again, in today's currency, imagine the poor people that you could help with $30,000. I think all of us, including me, would love to think that we would have disagreed with Judas here. But guess what? When we read Matthew's account of this incident, we learned that Judas's criticism of Mary found some traction with Jesus' other disciples. For in Matthew 26, verse 8, Matthew says, and I quote, the disciples, plural, were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? In Mark 14, 4, we learn that the disciples are voicing this question to one another, but then in Mark 14, 5, Mark says, and they, the disciples, were scolding her, essentially lecturing Mary on how she was wasting all this valuable oil on Jesus when it could have been used for a more compassionate and charitable purpose of meeting the needs of the poor. So when we put Matthew and Mark's account together with John's account, it seems evident that Judas was the first and the primary one to voice his complaint and to show his displeasure and that he evidently succeeded in winning the other disciples to his cause as they now join him in scowling at Mary and scolding her for what she is doing for Jesus here. But interestingly, in John's gospel, John leaves the spotlight entirely upon Mary, which means that in John's account, we're presented with two people with opposite perspectives where it really matters. On one extreme, Mary lavishes love on Jesus by anointing him with a perfume that was valued at a whole year's wages for a day laborer. On the other extreme, Judas sees what Mary is doing as too extravagant for Jesus, which indicates that he does not share Mary's assessment of the worth of Jesus. In the mind of Judas, Mary should not have done what she is doing for Jesus at all. Instead, in his mind, the world would have been a better place if she had simply withheld that from Jesus and directed the money from the sale 
of her perfume toward helping the poor. There's something else going on in Judas's heart that lies underneath his criticism. And John tells us what that is in verse six, when he says, now he, Judas, said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer or steal what was put into it. Now, this is enlightening information, right? We don't always have a look inside people's hearts like this, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John provides us this very helpful look inside of Judas's heart. And we learn here in verse 6 that Judas evidently was the treasurer for the disciples, which means that he was the one that Jesus and the disciples entrusted to handle the money that would have been donated to Jesus and his ministry. And the fact that Judas was trusted enough to be the money keeper for the disciples shows how much the wickedness of his heart was kept from the view of his fellow disciples. But John here tells us that Judas used to steal from what was donated and he would use it for his own personal purposes, which means that when Judas sees Mary lavishing this 300 denarii worth of oil on Jesus. Judas is not really thinking about what the poor are missing out on. He's really thinking about the 300 denarii that won't be in the treasury box for him to draw from for his own personal purposes, which means that Judas is mad that this great value is being wasted on Jesus rather than being available for Judas's own personal private use. Yet, of course, Judas doesn't say this out loud. He doesn't confess himself in this moment to be the thief and the traitor that he is. Instead, he tries to sound compassionate and spiritual and caring as he points the accusing finger at Mary for being wasteful and neglecting the poor. And his criticism sounds spiritual and compassionate enough that it resonates with the other disciples enough for them to join Judas in criticizing Mary. Can we learn a lesson here at all? From a wicked heart, Judas criticizes Mary for the way that she is showing her love for Jesus and he words his criticism in a way that even influences Jesus' own disciples to agree with him. In today's world, I can just see Judas pulling out his iPhone in this moment and putting out a tweet saying, watching Mary anoint Jesus' feet with expensive oil Too bad for the underprivileged who will go hungry because of such tragic wastefulness. 
And then imagine the other disciples seeing his tweet and liking it and retweeting his tweet with their agreement. This kind of thing happens all the time nowadays, right? No matter what a fellow Christian says or does, there's always someone to put a cynical spin on their words and actions and to find fault with them. And Christians can easily get caught up in that and pile on the criticism. And notice here that Judas uses the language of compassion uh, to find fault with Mary. And just think about the ways that Christians today are criticized by our world who uses the language of compassion and finding fault with us and say that we're not loving and we're hateful and we have no compassion. Criticisms like what Judas is doing happens on a personal level within the church. It's so easy to deliver a criticism of another person in spiritual sounding terminology. Most people who come up to you to criticize another brother or sister, they don't say, well, let me just preface what I'm saying by telling you about my carnal flesh that's at work in what I'm about to say to you. No, they'll criticize that other person in spiritual sounding terminology. And it's easy sometimes to hear such criticism and get sucked into that. But mark my words, a person who is perpetually pointing the finger at another and finding fault with them is hiding a deep wickedness within themselves. And what they are doing is a cheap and easy way to deflect people's attention from the wickedness that resides in their own heart. And to get you to look at the supposed failings of someone other than them. As Pastor Mark Lauterbach says, and I quote, it takes no advanced degree to find fault with another person or to show the stupidity of someone else's thinking. It takes much grace to see God at work in a fellow redeemed sinner whose life is marred by sin and marked by grace. It takes grace to see it and strengthen it. It takes grace to encourage them in a way that glorifies God and strengthens faith. But this is not what Judas is doing here at all. Mary is trying to show her love for Jesus and Judas criticizes her for it. He gets the other disciples to join him in dogpiling on Mary. But the question we would ask at this point is, what does Jesus think of what Mary is doing? What does Jesus think of what Judas is saying? Ultimately, it's his opinion that matters more than anyone else's, right? How will Jesus respond to both Mary and Judas in this moment? Well, this brings us to the third and the final development in this story revealing Jesus' response to Mary and Judas's contrasting perspectives of him. Number three, Jesus defends Mary and rebukes Judas. 
Jesus defends Mary and rebukes Judas. Observe what happens in verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said, and now here comes the fateful words where Judas and Mary are going to learn whose side Jesus is on. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. When Jesus says, let her alone, he uses the singular here in this verse, which means that his command here is directed at Judas himself. And he is telling Judas to let Mary continue anointing his feet with her oil and wiping his feet with her hair. Jesus is essentially saying that Mary doesn't need to stop what she is doing. She can continue. She can keep the oil and not have to sell what remains. And she can continue anointing Jesus with the oil. Now, Mark reveals that Jesus also had to shut down the others in the room who were joining Judas in his criticism. In Mark chapter 14, verse 6, Mark quotes Jesus as saying, You, plural, let her alone. Why do you, plural, why do you guys bother her? She has done a good deed to me. So Jesus had to direct such words to both Judas individually and then also to the other disciples. Though John here focuses on what Jesus is saying to Judas alone. As he speaks to Judas and says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Meaning again that Jesus is wanting Mary to maintain possession of her oil so that she can continue to anoint him for the day of his burial that is literally six days away. When Mary is done anointing Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verse 8, Jesus speaks of what Mary has done on this occasion and says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And stating this purpose of Mary for anointing Jesus, Jesus is almost certainly here revealing something about Mary's mindset in this moment. She is anointing him for his burial. As the commentator Carl Laney says, Mary must have sensed the darkness of the hour and sought to honor Jesus before his impending death. This would mean that Mary is clued into the fact that Jesus is somehow, someway going to experience a sudden and violent death that might not provide the normal opportunities for preparing the body for burial that the Jews were accustomed to performing. We learn from the other gospel accounts that Jesus had by this point been repeatedly warning his disciples about his imminent suffering and his death. And we are also told that Jesus' words went right over their heads. They didn't hear what he was saying. But it seems that Mary is clued in to what is going to happen to Jesus 
And she is now acting on that knowledge and realizing that Jesus is only going to be with them a few days longer. Mary decides to show her love for Jesus by anointing his body in advance for his burial that will follow his imminent death. As for Jesus' response to Judas, it's interesting he doesn't even bring up the fact that Judas was stealing from the money box. But he simply responds to the criticism that Judas had uttered. And I think he responds only to the criticism that Judas had uttered because he observes that the other disciples had come to share Judas's perspective. So he addresses his words in verse 8 to Judas and for the benefit also of the other disciples in the room. And we know this because of the grammar of verse 8. Look at verse where Jesus says, for you, plural, always have the poor with you, plural, but you, plural, do not always have me. So at this point, he's talking to Judas and to all of his disciples. Jesus' point is that there will be plenty of opportunities for the disciples to serve the poor in the days that lie ahead. But Jesus is literally six days away from his own death. And given the shortness of time for Jesus to be with his disciples in the flesh, Mary's gesture of anointing him is most appropriate. And given the week that lies ahead for Jesus Jesus' situation is actually right now far worse than that of any poor person, which makes him a most worthy recipient of Mary's charity, her kindness here. Jesus is entering into his Passion Week where he will be despised and afflicted and become so poor on our behalf. And this act of Mary upon Jesus, who will give up his life for our salvation, is most appropriate. Now, I should say here that Jesus' statement in verse 8, where he says, For you always have the poor with you, uh, has often been misused by politicians and talking heads On television, I've heard this passage explained in a way in which Jesus is understood to be saying that no matter how much you try to give to the poor, the poor will always be with you. So don't waste your effort trying to eliminate poverty. How many of you have heard that line of thinking at all? Okay, some of you have. Jesus is actually making the opposite point. And here's how we can know this. Uh, write down the reference Deuteronomy 15:11. The language that Jesus is using here is very much akin to the language of Deuteronomy 15:11, where God uses this very truth to motivate the Israelites to help the poor. Listen to this. In Deuteronomy 15:11, God says, listen carefully, "For the poor will never cease to be in the land." Therefore, I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. You see the logic there? 
In this passage in Deuteronomy 15.11, God is using the perpetual presence of the poor to motivate the Israelites to take advantage of the opportunities that will always exist to help the poor around them. God does not say in Deuteronomy 15, the poor will never cease to be in the land, so don't bother helping them. They're always going to be around, no matter what you do. No, he's saying the poor will always be with you, so always be ready to open your hand to them and help them. And here in John 12, 8, Jesus builds on that point to defend Mary and to remind his disciples of the dire circumstances that await him in the week ahead, showing that Mary has done the better thing in taking advantage of this opportunity to show her love to Jesus while she still has the chance before he suffers and dies. All things considered, I love the view of Jesus that this passage presents us with. I love how Jesus speaks up in defense of Mary when everyone else in the room is against her. A lesser man would have joined in with Judas's criticism or at least kept silent in the face of that criticism. Jesus could have read the the room in this moment and withdrawn from Mary in embarrassment and kind of waved her off. Given how Judas and the other disciples were scolding her. But Jesus doesn't do any such thing. He tells Judas and ultimately the others to back off and leave her alone. And he sticks up for Mary. And then he does one better than that, in Mark 14.9, write down that reference, Mark 14.9, where Jesus says, and I quote, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. That's awesome. Jesus is the lone person in this room who is supporting Mary And he gives her the greatest endorsement imaginable, promising that her good deed will never, ever be forgotten. In the process, Jesus is definitively siding with Mary over Judas. After this incident, we see two very different futures for Mary and Judas, Mary will forever be famous as the woman who anointed Jesus for his burial. 2,000 years have gone by and we're talking about what she did. As beautiful as it was. And what will become of Judas? Well, if you're reading the Gospel of Mark and his telling of the very story that we've looked at today, you don't have to wait long to find out what becomes of Judas at all. For as soon as Jesus finished speaking his words of defense of Mary, Mark says in Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, then Judas Iscariot. This is the very next thing said at the end of Mark's telling of this very story. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this And promised to give him money. 
And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. If Judas can't steal money from the sale of Mary's perfume that she is lavishing on Jesus instead, then he will get his money by selling Jesus to the chief priests. And about five days from this moment, Judas will find his opportune moment and will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and have Jesus arrested, after which point Jesus will be crucified. And then Judas's conscience will awaken with a vengeance. And he will be so racked with guilt over his sin that he will return the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest. And finding no consolation in returning that money, he will go out and hang himself. Talk about waste. What a wasted life. In fact, in Matthew 26, 24, Jesus says that it would have been better if Judas had never been born. What a waste. But for those of us who love Jesus this morning, our passage reminds us of many things. Reminds us that if we make it our aim to love Jesus and to serve him, we will provoke the criticism and the wrath of people who will be irritated by our devotion to Jesus. And sometimes this criticism may even come from people who are fellow Christians who have been influenced by the world to join the world in their criticism of us. We shouldn't be knocked off our game when such things happen. We should keep loving Jesus. Will you love Jesus regardless of what others might think about you? Or say to you, I hope you will. Another thing to savor in this story today is how Jesus cherishes Mary's act of service toward him. Mary shows her love to Jesus the way that she does. And Jesus defends her from her critics and promises that wherever the gospel is preached, what Mary has done will be remembered and honored. What this shows us is that Jesus appreciates the gestures of love that we show him and he never forgets them. He remembers and cherishes every act of love that you do toward him, great and small, every act of obedience, even when no one else sees, he sees and he appreciates. He cherishes your good works toward him partly because your good works for him were prepared by God beforehand for you to do, which means that your good works that you do for Jesus are actually love gifts from the Father through you to Jesus. And Jesus recognizes the good hand of his Father and the good hand of his Spirit in the good works that you do for him. And he never forgets them.
On another front, if Mary were here and we tried to praise her for her extravagant act of anointing Jesus with such expensive perfume, she would say that she was merely responding to the love that had been shown to her and to her family by raising her brother from the dead. She would say Jesus did the greater thing of releasing my brother from the tomb. And now it's just my opportunity to release the contents of this alabaster vial and to pour it all out upon Jesus in response to the love that he has shown to me and my family. She would say to us, don't take what I have done to prove how amazing I am. Take what I have done to prove how amazing Jesus is and how amazingly good that he has been to my family. I'm just responding in some small way to his great love in raising my brother from the dead. And she's realizing even more than that in this act. She has come to realize that Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead was extremely costly for Jesus. She knows that raising Lazarus from the dead has set in motion a chain of events that are now going to bring about Jesus' own death. And so she anoints him for his upcoming death and burial, realizing the cost of this act of raising her brother from the dead for Jesus. So don't read this story this morning and think only of Mary's act of breaking her jar of ointment and spilling it all out on Jesus and holding nothing back. She would want her act of anointing Jesus to point us to the fact that he is the one who will pour himself out for us at the cross. And therein lies the extravagance, right? Jesus is worth infinitely more than Mary's valuable perfume. He's worth infinitely more than $30,000. Yet he was willing to lay down his life for us who were spiritually poor. Laying down his life for us at the cross and allowing himself to be broken and spilled out for us while we were yet sinners so that we might be saved through faith in him and have atonement for our every sin and receive the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus and so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. And as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 5, 2, in the process, Jesus offered himself up on the cross as a fragrant aroma to God. And we are called to imitate Jesus and to walk in love as he did, which means that every time we forgive someone who has wronged us, every time we are kind and tender-hearted towards someone in our life who is undeserving of such kindness. Every time we walk in love, in imitation of our Savior, Jesus, we are bearing the very fragrance of Christ who poured himself out for us. 
And none of those acts are ever a waste. Nothing you ever do for Jesus is a waste. In fact, think about the impact of Mary's gesture, even on herself. She anoints Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Guess what Mary smelled like for many days thereafter? She smelled like the very perfume that she poured out on Jesus, bearing now in her own body the very fragrance of the deed which she has rendered upon Jesus. The truth is that her perfume has never been more fully hers than it is now that she is lavishing it on Jesus. For now she bears the very fragrance of what she has bestowed upon him, which would have never happened if she had withheld that perfume from Jesus and kept it safely tucked away and contained in its bottle. Again, all of this reminds us that nothing we ever do for Jesus is ever wasted. No life that is poured out for Jesus is ever wasted. Not even the life of William Borden, who died at the age of 25 in Egypt before he could make it to China. I would encourage you to read up on his story. As tragic as William Borden's death was that I described at the beginning of this message, God used even his death to raise up hundreds of young people to be missionaries. In response to that tragedy, writing for Christianity Today, Jason Casper says that Borden's life and his untimely death inspired countless missionaries to carry the gospel across the globe during the 20th century. William's friends in Cairo wrote tracts about his life and his testimony, and they translated those tracts into a handful of languages, and one of those languages was Chinese. And the Chinese version of this tract was distributed to 35,000 people and help to open doors for new mission stations in China. And in 1914, the China Inland Mission, who had received money from William Borden's will, founded the Borden Memorial Hospital in the provincial capital of Gansu. Because no life given to Jesus is ever wasted. Nothing you do for Jesus will ever be wasted either. But more importantly, always remember this, that if Jesus could take up his cross and be crucified and pour out his life in death upon the cross, and God can do all the good that he has done through Christ's death, then you have all the assurance that you need to know that no life poured out as a living sacrifice to Jesus will ever be wasted. The only wasted life 
is the life that is not given to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, this is an amazing story of few verses, and yet it is profoundly difficult to do justice to all that is contained here. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to fix our eyes upon you and stand in awe of how you allowed yourself to be broken and spilled out for us when we were yet sinners. And being moved by the greatness of this love that has come to us that we would respond by pouring out our lives for you in return knowing that nothing we ever do for you will be wasted. Even if no one else sees, you will see and remember and see to it that such is not wasted. Even if we are roundly criticized initially, you see and you will see to it that any service rendered to you will not be wasted. We have people in our church family, Lord, that um, have opportunity to grant forgiveness and kindness and to give tenderheartedness toward the undeserving. And it's so easy and such a moment to think that if I just give forgiveness and love and kindness, what a waste. The fear that would be wasted. And it's easy to believe Satan's lie, to believe that, nah, the better thing that will be more enduring and get better results is I'll take revenge. I'll be angry. I will speak in anger. And that will get things done. We all know, Lord, how that works out for us. That's the waste. Help us to trust you as you call us to do things great and small, public and private, visible to other people and invisible to other people, appreciated by other people and unappreciated by other people. Help us to listen to your voice and what you call us to do. Help us to do that for you in service to you, the one who laid down your life for us. Knowing that if no one else sees and no one else appreciates, you will see and you will appreciate and you will never forget. And you will see to it that nothing ever done for you is ever wasted. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.